Hello and welcome to another podcast from the Naval Historical Society of Australia. This is one of the many talks in the archives of the Society recorded over nearly two decades from 1973 until 1980 and now available for you through the Society's website. Today we're listening to HMS Kebron, a partial history. Lieutenant Commander Wock Roberts talks about his time in HMS Kebron and it was recorded 4th of February, 1977. Mr President, ladies and gentlemen, those of you who have heard me before will appreciate you're not in for much of a treat. I'm a terribly uh, off-the-cuff speaker. There are my notes for tonight. Uh, I'm not sure that um, they'll be altogether adequate now. To my horror, I find my old shipmate, Frank Gillespie, sitting over there monitoring everything I say. I've got pages of lies here which I'll have to I'll have to tell them now and I'll just hope that he'll keep his mouth shut. <laughs> um, when Alan Payne, our secretary, has written in the latest Naval Historical Review a long article, a long factual article on Quibran it is quite pointless for me to stand here and just read it out or even tell you the same sort of thing because you can read it yourselves when you get home. You've probably read it already. It's a very uh, good, solid, factual article. What I intend to do tonight is go through it quickly and just spin you a few yarns that I remember happening. Frank would remember lots of others, I'm sure. However, a couple of points right at the beginning of Alan's article. He starts here when Mr. Menzies was in Britain in early 1941. It was suggested the RAN should man the remaining three N-class destroyers to make up a full Australian flotilla of eight ships, the first five having already been manned. And this is where one can read b between the lines. But by the time the Naval Board had agreed to man the three destroyers, the Admiralty had already allocated them somewhere else. So the poor old Naval Board obviously was dithering and carrying on, and they didn't come back with an answer quickly enough. Then the Admiralty suggested that the RAN should man three Q-class destroyers, the Quiburn, Quickmatch and Quality. And this was done with the exception that the Naval Board said they could only accept two destroyers due to serious manning difficulties. Now, It's not for me to criticise after 30 years and so forth, and no doubt it was terribly difficult to get chaps from one side of the world to the other. But I feel that did show a bit of lack of initiative. Uh, a thing, and I'm getting off the subject here, but uh, it's all interesting to me anyway. Uh, this was the middle of 1942. The Royal Navy was commissioning ships at a great rate. Uh, they were scraping the bottom of the barrel to man these ships and I feel sure that had 
we really tried. We could have um, manned them partly at least for a start and fully, or the extra ship, the quality, fully afterwards. Um, it has always astonished me the number of college trained and um, experienced officers of the RAN who happened to be passed over in the 30s when everybody was passed over who were still looked upon by or seemed to be looked upon by the Naval Board or by the RAN as not suitable material when the war came. We had, I'm quite certain we had trained officers who could have manned those ships but we didn't but that, that, that is, is, is beside the point I've, I've sort of got off the subject. Right, now, the um, Quiberon, uh, she was commissioned on the 6th of July 1942 under Commander H.W.S. Browning. Uh, he was a brother of General Browning who was married to Daphne du Maurier, the novelist. Once again, that's just a bit of useless information. Um, the, uh, he was a... Uh, I did not serve in the ship for the first nine months of her life or a little longer so I did not know Captain Browning personally and in fact that first nine months of her life when you read the article you'll see was the really exciting part and I missed it all uh, she did Atlantic convoys for a while then in October 1942 uh, she took part in the uh, invasion of North Africa Operation Torch uh, on the 24th of November 1942 uh, she sank a U-boat, a very deep U-boat. By the first, the first pattern of depth charges she ever dropped in anger, which would have been nearly the first pattern she ever dropped because they're not the sort of thing you throw around uh, for practice very much. The very, well, the first pattern she ever fired in anger she sank a U-boat with which is a pretty extraordinary sort of a... And it was a very deep one, too, which was even more difficult. So I guess that was a U-boat captain whose luck had run out very much that day. And, of course, Quiberon's luck was in. On the 27th of November, three days later, she took part in a very uh, brisk action, night action off Cape Bon, in which she and a number of other ships intercepted a convoy of four supply ships and two destroyers and sank all the supply ships and one of the destroyers, the other one apparently reckoned discretion was the better part of valour. That's the sort of captain you want. You stay alive that way. I just just look, looking up this, however, I, I uh, there, there was a good quote here, I'm sure. However, not to worry. Well, we'll um, on the 28th of November, the next day, uh, Quentin, her sister ship, was torpedoed and lost, and uh, Commander Browning uh, distinguished himself very much by his ship handling in uh, going alongside the Quentin uh, under air attack and getting off uh, most of the survivors uh, and uh, returning them safe to harbour. Now things were fairly quiet until January 
Commander Browning was promoted captain on the 31st of December in 42, and he was relieved in January 43 by Commander G.S. Stewart, George Scott Stewart. Now, on the very least, the very least I could say is that George Scott Stewart was an unusual officer. Um, he was... Um, my memory of him is that he was, he was the captain when I joined the ship. My memory of him is that he was a very large man, like about here, I guess. He was about that wide. And uh, he was very conscious of his physical strength and also his psychological clout. Um, anyway, he joined the ship. Uh, he had recently been in command uh, of the uh, Royal Naval Navy destroyer Partridge, which had been badly damaged in the uh, Mediterranean, and he brought her back to Malta almost by willpower alone. Uh, basically, I guess, because his sailors were too frightened to let it sink. And he had been um, greatly... Uh, praise for this end and properly so too it, 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 uh, it was a magnificent effort of seamanship however he took over Quiberon then in March 43 Quiberon um, came back to Australia she had been commissioned in UK um, with chaps from all over you know the fellows who had been overseas for a good long while and when she got back home in March, uh, she went to Williamtown for a refit, just a quick refit, obviously, she wasn't a very old ship. And uh, most of the ship's company went, they'd been away for a good long while. And she commissioned basically as a Port Melbourne ship. Uh, I, I'm not certain whether any other RAN ships during the war commissioned in that fashion. But we were, for all practical purposes, uh, a Port Melbourne ship. Would you agree with that, uh, Frank? It, it, it's uh, Williamstown mainly. Uh, whether this was deliberate or whether it was just convenient because um, uh, we, we happened to go into Williamstown, most of the ship's company went off and we got a new ship's company, I, I don't know. But anyway, there it was. Uh, I don't know, but I reckon 80% of the sailors, anyway, would have been Port Melbourne sailors. So we were a Melbourne ship. I guess the guys talked Australian rules a lot. Right. Now, and then came a big moment. May 43, I joined. I was the sub-lieutenant, the youngest officer in the ship, um, and the navigating officer. Um, in the ship at the time. Uh, when I joined the ship, um, the first lieutenant was Lieutenant Commander McCliver, who um, a couple of days later was accidentally killed. And um, he was replaced by Lieutenant Commander, or Lieutenant then, Ashley Brown, who lives in Melbourne now. I saw him a few years ago. Uh, he's still battling on pretty successfully and uh, 
amongst the officers we had um, old Ashley Brown was the first lieutenant Tony Sinnott was the second lieutenant who's now the chief of the naval staff who's now vice admiral Sinnott uh, John Shelley was the um, anti-submarine officer our medical officer a chap called Bishop remember his first name, he's the professor of medicine at Sydney University right now and altogether, you know, there's some fairly distinguished sort of characters in the ship anyway, away we went and uh, off to um, Diego Garcia, funnily enough, that they're talking about now and we fueled there and we went over to, uh, as I recall it, to East Africa and apparently the submarine threat had bucked up a lot in the South Atlantic at that time we went down to South Africa and uh, on arrival in South Africa there was some sort of shore destroyer set up or a, a, a shore destroyer organization was set up and Commander Stewart was put ashore as Commander D as sort of running all the destroyers and uh, Ashley Brown became our captain so from being uh, one of the senior destroyers around we became the junior destroyer which was all right except you get all the rotten jobs when you're a junior destroyer and we potted about there for about three months with Ashley Brown in <coughs> command we had odd little adventures the one I remember best was we <coughs> went up the Congo River which is way up on the west coast of Africa you know so we were well into the Atlantic uh, Obviously, uh, we had taken a convoy up there and uh, <coughs> uh, it, it was thought or, or it had been established as a fueling uh, station and uh, the uh, oiler was anchored some distance up the river. Now, at this space of time, I can't tell you how far, but I reckon it would have been 15 or 20 miles. You know, it was a long way up the river. Uh, which, of course, the Congo is twice as big as Sydney Harbour anyway. It's, 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 uh, I mean, the width is a tremendous river. And I think the ship, the oiler, probably had to go that far in order to find anywhere to anchor because it's the first time I noticed, but on the chart when we got there, I noticed this tremendous underwater canyon that runs from the Congo way out to sea as if uh, at some stage the sea level was two or 3,000 feet lower and then it had started raining and there was a tremendous sort of torrent of deluge of water running down the continental shelf but uh, the, the depths outside the Congo are tremendous I can't remember what they are but enormously more than they are on the there's this great canyon running from the river to the uh, abyss I think that's the word um, anyway we had to go a fair way up uh, the Congo and it, 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 it had a pretty brisk sort of a current you know about seven or eight knots or both and I can't remember quite how we uh, managed it but uh, what should happen but um, instead of dropping the anchor we were told to anchor somewhere while we were waiting to go alongside this thing instead of dropping the anchor stemming the current somehow we dropped it heading downstream and running down with the um, with the current and um, I have never seen a, a, an anchor cable pay out quite so quickly with uh, I suppose we had about five or six knots way on and another five or six knots way on the river 
and uh, I can remember the cable party heading in all directions and spark and flames and smoke coming out of the cable, or the uh, drum, the brake, and, uh, and uh, all the time very conscious of the fact that the navigating officer is responsible when the cable is put in the ship is responsible that the deck clench, that's the very end of the cable, is secured to the, the thing on the bottom of the cable locker. Uh, and of course I had neglected to actually be present when they did put the cable back in I was wondering whether the cable really was secured to the ship or not. Uh, anyway, it paid out at a tremendous rate and eventually came up all standing, the deck clench held and it was secured and I've never been in a ship that flipped quite so quickly. The thing, it, 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 quite honestly, it, it, uh, as we sort of flipped with the current, this cable was running from the hawse pipe virtually parallel for about 200 yards before it went into the water. It was, it was unreal. And uh, anyway, we and we were anchored, no trouble. Uh, so, right. Uh, then we, um, that took us towards the end of 43. Uh, then we were moved up to um, I don't know, we're based in Killandini, I suppose, or up around there. And uh, we were doing Indian Ocean convoys and that sort of thing. Uh, nothing very interesting, pottering about. Sometime at this stage, we picked up, a, we went out looking for a ship that had been sunk by a submarine, or looking for a submarine. And uh, we picked up the survivors. Remember that one, Craig? What was the name of the ship? Do you remember? That's right, because Ashley was in command, and I'll never forget that. Yeah, we, we uh, after we'd got these guys in, we said, "Old Ashley said, right, we've got to sink that lifeboat. We can't leave it just so at a range of about a hundred yards." Poor old B gun took about ten shots to hit the rotten thing. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley getting crankier and crankier. Well, goodness knows what we would have hit it to uh, ten miles. <laughs> Anyway, we uh, Indian Ocean convoys. Then the year flipped over to 1944, and uh, we were uh, went up to uh, Ceylon, and we're based in Trincomalee, which is a super harbour on the north, well, on the east coast of Ceylon, northish, northish east coast of Ceylon. Uh, and we had a couple of trips around to Colombo, which was always fun. Um, Trincomalee was a bit dull, there wasn't much there. Um, and then in March 44, I'm going on quite smartly, but there's no point in boring you all night. In March 44, <coughs> uh, as is told in Alan's tale here, the, um, an American task force con consisting of the carrier Saratoga and three destroyers were sent up uh, and uh, we went out and met them and when I say we it was quite a reasonable sort of fleet by that time that consisted of the heavy ships were renowned valiant Queen Elizabeth and illustrious uh, and uh, we met up with them and came back to Trincomalee and it was uh, quite a thing this Saratoga was a very big ship uh, even today uh, admittedly she wouldn't be anything like the size of the Enterprise but by Jiminy she was a much bigger than our carriers very big ship. Um, and during this time there was a, a, an interesting incident from a professional point of view. 
Um, you all know how ships fuel at sea now. They, one ship goes alongside another and you put a pipe across and away you go and fuel. And presumably, and I've never researched this, presumably the Yanks were doing this, but the old bridge system at this time was to tie yourself, and I mean tie yourself, to the fueling ship before you put the hose across uh, with a, uh, a breast and a spring, and, and they were both hurricane hawsers. And we fueled, in Quiblin, we fueled from Queen Elizabeth uh, on this particular day, and, and it was hell's delight getting these great lines across and so forth. And, and when you were secured, the, the, the ship sort of, you kept a little bit of outboard rudder to keep the breast taut, and you kept a couple of revs below the uh, fueling ship to keep the uh, spring taut. Uh, and uh, the fueling ship sort of half towed you. Uh, and then everything solid, you got the fueling line across. Well, we were in the middle of this, and we had the fueling line across. Well, what should happen? But the uh, uh, spring in the breast broke. Uh, now this isn't, I know what you're thinking about Frank, but this, I'm, I'm not, not about to, to t tell about the time we got sprayed with oil fuel. On th this occasion the spring parted, uh, I think it was the spring, but anyway, both of them parted in, in the end. And George Stewart, George Scott Stewart, caught the ship before everything parted and he brought it back and we completed fueling in the way that we've done it ever since. In other words, by the captain keeping the ship alongside the ship that was fueling him. And I remember there were congratulatory signals all around the fleet saying what a great job it was. And from then on, in the Eastern Fleet, that method was adopted because we'd sort of dropped on it by accident. Uh, and I often wonder whether we were the first king's ship to fuel uh, alongside without being secured to the fueling ship in any way. That's just a, a little thing. Now in, in mid-April, having met up with this great this Saratoga and everything, um, an operation was planned for uh, mid-April and uh, from the point of view of the destroyers on the screen it was of no real, it was just another thing. We, we went down and uh, the carriers flew off aircraft and attacked targets in Sabang in uh, Thing. In, in Sumatra, yeah, in, in Sumatra, and uh, from our point of view there was nothing, I don't even remember any enemy air activity to be perfectly honest, it, it was just a, you know, I can't tell you any worries about that, although the poor devils in the aeroplanes no doubt could. Um, we came back to Trincomalee, then a couple of weeks later the same mob went down and attacked Surabaya in Java uh, exactly the same way. Uh, we had an, e an even bigger fleet then. We had the Richelieu, the French battleship uh, with us then, I remember. And just to, was a diversion, I, I, I recall being on the screen, Richelieu went out for a full power trial from Trincomalee and we and some other destroyer were sort of formed a screen, just the two of us and her, and she wound up and we wound up, and when we'd wound up to full power, uh, she sort of passed between us and then turned us all and there she was, <laughs> and we were in position again. 
we would have been doing, I guess, about 31 or 32, and she went past, I don't know, she must have been doing 34 or 35. But of course, big ships, when they've got lots of power, are always better off I mean, on account of their length. That's just beside the point. Anyway, we attacked Surabaya and uh, carried on down to Exmouth Gulf to fuel. Once again, I don't recall any worries there. Uh, in Exmouth Gulf, uh, we got the glad news that we would, the fleet was going to go back, uh, but we would carry on to Williamstown for a refit. So, a little over a year after we'd left Williamstown, we returned there, and uh, we were back in Williamstown uh, on D-Day, as a matter of fact. I, I remember it well. I was sitting on the club fender with a gunner with a glass of beer in my hand when we got the news that D-Day had happened. So I reckon we were in about the best possible place. <laughs> um, at about this time, in, not about this time, at exactly this time, George Stewart left the ship and Admiral, no, Commander Harrington, Arch Harrington, joined. Uh, <laughs> it was quite interesting because Admiral Harrington arrived on board with a horrific reputation. Oh, goodness, you know, he was the... Uh, he'd really been giving him curry up in the fleet here. And uh, blokes were saying, oh, you'll be sorry having him for captain. Well, after Commander Stewart, we found him just like a gentle little lamb. He was no trouble at all. <coughs> anyway, he joined, and we, I always got on terribly well with dear old Arch. <coughs> and... Interestingly enough, as he joined, Tony Sinnott became the first lieutenant. So there we had a destroyer with two chiefs of the naval staff, because as you know, Admiral um, Arch Harrington became CNS ten years ago or so, and Tony Sinnott is CNS now. So with those two on board, we should have been the best ship in the fleet. All I can think is that I must have, must have brought the average down a bit. <laughs> um, we went off with old um, Arch, had a couple of exciting incidents like um, Tony Sinnott and the gunner getting put in jail in Fremantle. Remember that? We were delayed, we were delayed. Did you? Oh, you only had the worst of it. Oh, <laughs> we were getting on to the good part now. <laughs> oh yes, they, they I can't remember the exact details, but uh, we were delayed half a day in uh, sailing, but old Cuthbert Pope was the Commodore commanding the West, some of the oldies here remember Cuthbert Pope, and uh, we were supposed to sail at 8 o'clock, but a car was sent down so that the first lieutenant and the gunner could go up and report to the Commodore in swords and medals, or whatever he wore in those days, uh, to be told exactly what he thought of them because they'd got into some sort of terrible trouble in Fremantle the night before and we got away about four hours late. <coughs> I wonder if the Chief of the Naval Staff can remember that incident. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, we joined the, we rejoined the Eastern Fleet up in Trincomalee. In the meantime, uh, our flotilla, the Qs, had had a very Butte little action in Sabang. They'd gone into the harbour and beaten it up and come out again without too many casualties, which of course we missed because we were refitting at the time. We went back to the Eastern Fleet, um, and in Trincomalee we had 
an extraordinary series of three incidents over three weeks, uh, two of which were most unusual. First thing was, um, we were in harbour and um, well, the fleet air arm guys, they must have been based ashore, I guess. Anyway, fleet air arm did a mock attack on the place and uh, two of the fellows collided more or less right over the top of us. And uh, uh, the first thing I recall was a piece of aeroplane sort of flapping in front of my vision and the next thing somewhere over there, not far away, a couple of hundred yards away, a great splash and an aeroplane speared in and the other one speared in somewhere else. So it wasn't a very successful <coughs> uh, attack as far as the uh, fleet air arm was concerned. Uh, but it was an incident to remember. <coughs> then a week later, one of the, it was a Sunday, and one of the submarines there, we had a number of submarines there, that was one of the sailors had his brother or his cousin or somebody who was in a surface ship come down and look round the ship, the submarine. And in the course of this look round the submarine, uh, apparently this surface uh, sailor, he said, uh, well, how do you fire a torpedo in these things? And the submarine sailor said, oh, it's easy, you just do that, 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 and press that, and, <coughs> and away it goes. And sure enough, away went a torpedo. <laughs> and uh, would you believe at the other end of the torpedo track was uh, one of the small leaf-class tankers uh, oiler, she was full of oil, fuel oil, and uh, she received the torpedo and up she went and sank very smartly and Trincomalee Harbour as a result from then on the rest of the time we were there, it's a very narrow entrance and not much tide, um, it had about three or four inches of oil fuel floating around in it. Now that was, you know, that's a pretty unusual incident and would you believe the next week uh, as you know, Singapore had fallen, oh, Captain Cook dock here wasn't finished, and the old Brits had really pushed building a battleship-style floating dock in India. And this dock was finally finished and was brought down and secured in Trincomalee, brand new. And um, first of all, they put a destroyer in it and everything was right, then they put a cruiser in it and everything was right, and then they put the old Valiant in it. And... Uh, up went the Valiant in the dock, happy as a bird, and come about the following Sunday after the tanker, about 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock on Sunday night, the dock started breaking up. And there was the old Valiant, and this is a most extraordinary sight, I can tell you. Uh, yeah, the forward end broke. And she started falling out of the dock. Well, you know, you get 30-odd thousand tons of battleship, the bottom of the keel of which is, what, at least, what is it, well, it's 12 feet above the water, lo water level in a, in a floating dock? It's got to be. She's obviously in a very unstable state. And this damn dock, it was sort of creaking and groaning and the great bangs as bits fell off it and the, and the ship lurching and so forth. And uh, it eventually, uh, and, uh, it must have been terrifying for the fellows in the ship, Eventually it all ended with her with a great list on and her bow sort of stuck in the bottom and her stern still held way out of the water. And the uh, water level was about up to the barbette of a turret. 
So she was in a pretty bad shape. I don't think the old Valiant was ever the same again, just as well it was near the end of the war. <coughs> uh, but, you know, who's ever heard of a ship falling out of a dry dock? <laughs> oh, I don't know. It's just an extraordinary thing. Anyway, um, then everybody got a bright idea that Alan's got it all here, uh, that we should make a feint against the Nicobar Islands to sort of draw the Japanese away from whatever the Yanks were doing in the Pacific. And as Alan says, it didn't, didn't succeed, but it didn't matter. Uh, <coughs> the Nicobar Islands are those islands sort of in the uh, Bay of Bengal, just off the Bengal, uh, yeah, the uh, Burmese coast, I suppose you'd say. Uh, and the Japanese had occupied them. Anyway, we carried out the air, the carriers bombed them and all sorts of things went on. And we actually carried out a bombardment and uh, knocked over a few huts and things, but I don't think we did much damage. And uh, so we actually did fire our guns. That was something. And the thing that I always remember about this is that we had an American observer on board. Now, this is something that will interest the oldies, the young ones, it won't mean a thing to them. But, but <coughs> and this American observer was a Captain USN Reserve, and his name was Gene Markey. And Gene Markey was a great Hollywood director. And Gene Markey had been married in succession to Myrna Loy, Joan Bennett, and Hedy Lamarr. <laughs> And he told us all about these three ladies, everything you could possibly wish to know. And he, <laughs> he, he reckon Joan Bennett was the only one that he really was fond of. He said, that Hedy Lamar, God damn, he said, that's just a weekend affair that went wrong. <laughs> anyway, old, uh, uh, this fellow, the word got around, and of course, it's hard to project it now, but in those days, those three females, they were the goddesses of the world. And, and the sailors, the way they used to look at old Gene Markey with their eyes popping out, you know. And he wasn't all that... Uh, he was all right, I suppose, but nothing particularly flash about it. Anyway, I remember we had a, we had a bit of a party. <laughs> we had a bit of a party when we got back and we cut a thing out of a cigarette lid, a star. The name of the island that we'd attacked was Car Nicobar. So we gave him this thing with a ribbon and everything, and we called it the Car Nicobar Star with Bar. How about that? <laughs> anyway, that was the end of old Marky. He went off somewhere. Uh, then, shortly afterwards, in fact, the beginning of December 1944, uh, was the beginnings of the British Pacific Fleet, and we joined up with the Howe which was a KG-5 class battleship, and four Q-class destroyers, th three of them RN, and the Howe, uh, proceeded to Australia. To, uh, we went to Fremantle and then around to Melbourne, where we arrived on the 24th of December, which is Christmas Eve. And there are these four RN destroyers and there was Quibran, a Melbourne ship. Well, you can imagine what the Quibran sailors did. They just vanished. No, no, I'm not sure what sort of leave we granted, but obviously we granted the most we possibly could and they were nearly all Melbourne natives anyway. And would you believe, at just about that time, 
Uh, some rotten ship got itself torpedoed off the New South Wales coast. I think it was called the ja Jasper Park. Is that right? Where's Lou? He knows. Your no, not the Japarra. What was the name of that thing that got torpedoed? You were telling me about it the other day. Jasper. Yeah, li li Liberty Ship, the Jasper Park, wasn't it? Anyway, this rotten thing got itself torpedoed by a German U-boat. It was the furthest away from Germany ship that a German U-boat ever torpedoed. And of course it had to happen to me on Christmas Eve. <laughs> uh, and I, I always remember being woken up because I'd arranged for a great party that next day, on Christmas Day, being woken up by um, one of our officers who was a bit of a humorist saying we're going to see and I thought well that's the silliest joke I ever heard <laughs> anyway uh, naturally enough the RN ships they were able to get away virtually straight away uh, I think they would have slipped and they'd gone by 8 o'clock and there we were with about 4 men and a dog on board and all the police in Melbourne racing around trying to find equivalent sailors <laughs> why everybody didn't cut their losses and say well three's enough I, I don't know just shows how some people aren't, uh, don't have a sense of proportion. Um, we eventually got about half our sailors back and we proceeded at noon on Christmas Day, which is a lousy sort of thing to do. And, but in fact, it was one of the, was a trip that stuck in my mind ever since because we were on our own. Obviously, the others were well ahead of us. Uh, we cleared uh, Port Phillip at pretty high speed. You, one is limited uh, in law Port Phillip because it's reasonably shallow and uh, as those who've served know, uh, in shallow water a ship's stern drops and after a bit all you're doing is churning up, uh, churning up water and not going any faster. I can't remember what maximum speed we were able to do out of the bay but something around about 20 knots. Anyway, as soon as we were clear, uh, we wound up to a nice genuine 30 and those ships were absolutely super that way you could you could at th 300 revolutions they sort of had gone through their vibration periods and they were as smooth as silk and you could sit on 300 revolutions 10 revs or not all day uh, and that gave you a genuine genuine 30 knots and uh, plenty in hand without straining anything <coughs> And uh, anyway, we took off. It was perfect weather, absolutely perfect. And uh, I've never forgotten I was on the bridge the whole way from there to Sydney uh, because we were short of this, that and the other. And uh, quarter hour fixes, instead of being that far apart on the chart, they were that far apart, you know. And uh, I remember in the afternoon or the evening, um, as we sort of did one of our alterations around... Wilson's Promontory or something, there in our grain, that is in our, you know, right ahead of us was this funny little old Greek freighter wallowing along. And we only altered course enough to miss it. <coughs> and uh, I'll never forget, there were a couple of guys in deck chairs <coughs> in the quarter deck or the rear end, the poop of this thing. Uh, and the first they knew that we were coming was when they heard our bow wave, which I guess was like Niagara Falls, and they sort of looked up and we went flashing past and left the thing rocking in our wake. It was one of my, my uh, happier moments. Old Arch Harrington, I, I'm not sure that he uh, 
he usually didn't pass ships that close because it's not very safe. But uh, when I say close, we didn't pass him a hundred yards off, I suppose, but we were pretty close. <coughs> yeah, yeah, certainly shook him up. And it was, uh, and in the event, um, we um, we were secured in Sydney. The, by the time we got up here, of course, the experts said, ah, oh, it's too late, just come into Sydney. Well, we were secured in Sydney well before noon the next day, so we'd left Melbourne at noon, and we were in Sydney before noon the next day. There. So we uh, almost beat the train, and if we'd wanted to, I'm sure we could have. <coughs> right, now... Um, Next thing, we're off to New Zealand to collect. It must have been the last convoy of troops that left New Zealand to go to uh, uh, overseas. The, the Kiwis were still pretty heavily engaged in Italy, I think, at that time, beginning of 1945. Anyway, we, we took these chaps as far as the west, and we went into Albany to await the new Governor-General, who was uh, the, uh, the Duke of Gloucester. Uh, he was coming out in some ship, the name of which escapes me. And uh, we had about, oh, five days in Albany, two of us, quick match, yep, quick match and quiver, the two Australian queues. Now, Albany, uh, it hadn't seen anything since the war began, sort of every, every male between 16 and 60 had cleared out. And I can tell you, we had a wild time in Albany. It was, uh, it was really something. However, <coughs> that's beside the point, <coughs> we brought the... Uh, the Duke round to Sydney and uh, at about this time, during all this time, Arch Harrington had uh, got himself engaged to be married <coughs> to the lady who is now Lady Harrington and uh, <coughs> he was married in February 1945. <coughs> now I was, had the duty and about six o'clock one evening, old Arch sent for me. We were number two boy out here somewhere. And he said, uh, he said, Roberts, I'm getting married tomorrow. And I said, yes, sir, I know. Thinking to myself, you miserable old bee, you haven't asked me to your wedding. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he said, um, he said, I need a wedding ring. I said, crops. Uh, well, a bit late, uh, the shops are shut, I think, sir. And he said, he said, I don't want you to buy one, boy. He said, make one. <coughs> I said, good Lord. <laughs> I said, what will I make it out of? And he said, out of stainless steel, boy. What else? <laughs> so, so I said, I said, what size? He said, I don't know what size. Make a selection. <laughs> so away I went. <laughs> so away I went, and uh, I dug out the poor old duty Tiffy and, and his mate and so forth, and uh, I fixed them up with a couple of bottles of beer, and uh, away they went. And uh, as these chaps always do, they did an absolutely superb job. Uh, as I recall, there were about three sizes of stainless steel tubing, which they could just chop a bit off. <laughs> and then the in-between sizes, they had to sort of cut it and put it together and buff it and, you know, sweat the thing together and so forth. And in the end, as I recall, 
have they made about six or even eight rings of sort of <laughs> sizes and would you believe they found a suitable box and got some velvet and one thing and another so by about midnight I was able to go along the old arch with a box with a velvet lining and little slots in it with whatever the number of stainless steel wedding rings were and the old arch said oh you know I wasn't excited at all it was just normal for him he, he no sort of thanks very much or anything like that. <coughs> anyway, uh, uh, so he had his wedding rings. Now, there's an interesting sequel to this. Uh, oh, I was going to say just the other day, but a couple of years ago, um, I was in the mess and by chance I happened to be spinning this yarn about the stainless steel wedding rings. And... Uh, one of the chaps I was talking to said, uh, said now that's a, an interesting yarn. He said, look, over in the corner there is young Simon Harrington, who's serving in the Navy now, uh, with his new wife, who was a RAN officer at that time. He said, go over and tell them the yarn, and they'd be most interested to hear it. So I went over and I told them the yarn, and uh, they weren't the slightest bit impressed, and the lady... The lady said, yes. She said, look, uh, here's one of the rings on the finger. <laughs> it is a Harrington family thing that they wear stainless steel wedding rings. And we knocked the whole lot up in about six hours one evening in February 1945. And in the midst of all this, I might say, and this will be of more interest to the engineering sort of chaps than anyone else, uh, the quartermaster came along to me and he said, uh, he said, excuse me, sir, the gearing compartment's got some water in it. I said, oh, goodness. Uh, the gearing compartment's the bit between the engine room and the, um, the bit that turns the, as far as I know, please correct me if I'm wrong, it's the bit that turns the, the high speed of the turbines into a slow enough speed for the propellers. Uh, it, it gears down the speed of the turbines, and, and in those ships it was the whole sort of... Uh, slice of the ship uh, and I suppose about I don't know 10 feet long would, would have been the queues would have been about 10 feet long but it was the sort of hole around the ship and um, so I went along to sort of say well I suppose we better look and see what we can do about and goodness me opened the hatch and there was the water outside you know over the ship's side and there was the water inside and they were the same level she was flooded up to the water line and this is a thing which I understand these days there'd be inquiries and all sorts of things. Anyway, old Arch wasn't the slightest bit impressed when I told him the gearing compartment was flooded. He said, you get it pumped out and tell the engineers to fix it up, which we did, and they did. Presumably there's all sorts of oil that's got to be changed and all sorts of things got to need to be done when you flood your gearing compartment, but didn't worry anyone because old Arch was getting married next day. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Arch left the ship then, and George Knox, who I'm sure you all remember, um, he joined. Um, and the British Pacific Fleet all came together. And uh, in February, or late in February, uh, we proceeded to Manus. Quite a large fleet. I see in, uh, in Alan's um, article, and I'm sure it's quite right, uh, we started off with two battleships, four heavy carriers, four cruisers, and 12 destroyers. Uh, it grew much bigger after that. 
I'm sure I remember sort of 36 destroyers on the screen and so forth, but that was in our second session. But the, the, we went off and we were the first units of the British Pacific Fleet. And as a matter of interest, um, <coughs> from the day the British Pacific Fleet formed, uh, that is to say steamed off to Manus on this day in February 45, to August the 15th when the war ended, the only two ships that took part in every operation that the BPF took part in were the uh, Quiberon and the Victorious, the carrier. Every other ship missed something, but uh, Quiberon and Victorious were the two that were there the whole time. Uh, that's just passing. <coughs> um, we joined up with the Yanks, quite an interesting experience. Uh, uh, up in Manus, I'll never forget the... I just had a normal... I was still a navigator of this bloody ship. I was getting pretty old by then. <laughs> being a navigator forever. We had a normal sort of uh, chart house. I suppose my chart house was about as big as this there. Might have been a little wider. Not much. Anyway, their operation orders came in. And you couldn't fit them in there. <laughs> stacks and stacks and stacks of these blasted operation orders, uh, which I don't think anybody got round to reading a whole lot. I do recall that uh, I was fascinated with the orders for the invasion of Japan, which was um, due in November '45. Um, they were terrifying. They reckoned um, um, the Japanese had um, <coughs> something like seven thousand kamikazes standing by to throw in at the first uh, on the first day. They had. Uh, Every man, woman, and child was armed with a bamboo spear and were going to take one American soldier with them and so forth. Anyway, they, they, were, uh, they were making allowances. They were allowing for one million casualties. That's not one million killed, but one million casualties in the uh, invasion of Honshu. So if that estimate was in any way right, uh, when people say we should never have dropped the atom bomb, well, there's a million guys in good shape today who wouldn't have been if we hadn't dropped the atom bomb. Uh, that's just a point in passing. <coughs> anyway, um, BPF, what is there to say about it? We, uh, we just escorted um, uh, the carriers. Uh, uh, the first little while we were on the screen, the queues were the oldest ships by this time in the BPF. Um, and uh, originally we were on the screen every uh, night and the queues would come in and act as the uh, bird dog, the uh, uh, escort destroyer, the um, rescue destroyer, uh, astern of the carriers uh, during the day, four carriers, four queues. Uh, in a fog, not long after we'd got up there, the Captain D, who was Captain Dickie Onslow, later Sir Richard Onslow, DSO and three bars, he rammed the uh, indomitable fair up the, uh, the stern and uh, his ship was Quilliam. Well, he really wrote her off. She was never any good again. Uh, he didn't kill anyone. Fortunately, they were at action stations, but the mess were all pushed into a little pile and one thing and another. And uh, the interesting bit was that the RN's reaction to this was everybody was making signals the Admiral commanding the carriers, the captain of the Indomitable, 
the Admiral commanding the fleet, they're all making signals saying it was their fault and dear old Dickie, it wasn't his fault at all. Whereas we know what would happen in our Navy, old Dickie would have been hung by the thumbs from the nearest yardarm forever. <laughs> Wouldn't matter what his war record was. <coughs> anyway, old Dickie, uh, we lost William then and, and after that they decided the Qs had better stay there all the time. So we spent most of the war, most of the Pacific fleet business, uh, two cables astern of our carrier and ours happened to be indefatigable. Uh, as a result of this, and as I was action officer of the watch, uh, I reckon um, I probably saw as many kamikaze strikes as anyone, you know, with my own eyeballs, as anyone in the war, because uh, the carriers were struck quite a lot, and two cables astern, uh, you get a very good uh, sort of grandstand view, and it never crossed our mind that the kamikazes, well, it never crossed my mind, the kamikazes might go for us instead. And just as well it didn't, I'd have been terrified. But as it was, it was just like being at the movies, you know. Uh, and um, in fact, on April the 1st, that was our big kamikaze day, and I think that I think that every carrier was hit that day, but the brick carriers had four-inch armoured decks, and when a kamikaze hit them, it bounced off, whereas the American carriers, when they were hit, it went through the wooden deck into the hangar, and there was hell, all hell let loose. Uh, very early on in the BPF days, had our carriers not had armoured decks, uh, they all would have been out of action and the BPF would have ceased to exist. Uh, as it was, um, the kamikazes did surprisingly little damage. The only one I recall doing being spectacular at all was some chap who sort of fell vertically. And everybody was looking somewhere else anyway. There's nothing you could do to stop the rotten things, uh, except shoot at him, of course, but I don't think anybody shot at this one. And uh, he, he came down absolutely vertically into Formidable and hit a flight deck uh, sort of in the centre. Uh, he made a dent in the four-inch armoured deck, huge dent, which was filled in with that rubber solution to make the deck level again. And belted a couple of splinters from underneath the armoured deck which went through one of her boilers and out through the bottom. And this caused a bit of embarrassment. She couldn't steam as fast as she should for a while, but in fact she was operating aircraft again the next day, uh, although she was uh, not fully uh, operational speed-wise. Um, it was quite fascinating. I wish I could see him now because I'd have a completely different view of it. It never crossed my mind there's actually a human being sitting in those aeroplanes. You know, it was, uh, well, just a turkey shoot, as it were. Um, I interesting to see how rapidly the effectiveness of close-range weapons increases as an aircraft gets closer. Uh, I'd had a bit of experience in the Mediterranean and so forth, but of course the chaps there, their intention was to stay alive just as much as ours was. Uh, therefore, we very seldom hit them and they very seldom hit us. Uh, but the kamikazes, they kept on coming in and at, say, I don't know, say for one of argument, at a thousand yards you could see you'd, you'd start hitting them. Because uh, you could see the strikes of the 40 mils against them and bits would start flying off them. At 500 yards, you'd really be hitting them. The thing would be flying apart. And I 
doubt if any kamikaze was actually in control when it hit because a lot more didn't hit than did and I reckon that probably at 500 yards the pilot would be dead and the thing would be out of control and if it crashed on the ship, good luck but uh, if it didn't, it didn't but it, it really, you know, the 40 mils they really hit them when they get into about a thousand yards and closer um, <coughs> that's talking about worries there uh, interesting enough to keep on with the worries on April the 7th was the big uh, sort of suicide dash of the Yamato the, uh, the big Japanese battleship and several destroyers down to Okinawa and the Yanks caught up with them and sank them uh, it so happened we were tuned into the aircraft frequency and we didn't see it of course they were out of sight but I wish I'd had this machine to get a tape of the conversation of the pilots attacking this vessel which we got quite clearly and uh, the command pilot who uh, was cursing his fellows well, he wanted to put all the torpedoes into one side which he did all except one I mean he, he hit up with I don't know 10, 12, 15 torpedoes and all of them on one side except one and, and I, I can distinctly remember him cursing the pilot who put the torpedo on the wrong side he said all that is going to assist the damage control teams in writing the list <laughs> they, they had it absolutely weighed off the poor devils they didn't have a chance um, in May as a matter of interest we steamed in the month of May Quibroon steamed 12,111 miles and I reckon that might be the furthest, I don't know, I suppose it is, but it's the furthest I've ever heard of any ship steaming in one month. Admittedly, it's a 31-day month, but 12,111 miles is a hell of a long way to steam in one month. It works out an average of 16 and a half or 17 knots or something. Um, getting near the end of the story now. Uh, <laughs> back we came to Sydney. <coughs> And this, this, this is a, a, of interest, especially the way the blokes, they can't go outside these days unless they've got everything working properly. I had, at this stage in the war, which was only a month from ending, I had never seen a PPI, a planned position indicator, you know, a radar screen. Uh, we had a gunnery radar and a quibbling and, and an allegedly aircraft radar. They didn't work, they were no bloody use. Uh, but in Sydney alongside the dockyard we were given a Sugar George, Sugar George that was the American surface set which was a very good set indeed and the dockyard put the aerial on the mast and presumably connected up the electric wiring and then they put the rest of the set on the upper deck in boxes and we went to sea with the BPF for a second run up there and three weeks later, the Sugar George was working with a PPI on the bridge, a PPI in the operations room, all beautifully set up, all done by ship staff. Now, if you ask these jokers here to do something like that today, they'd die. <laughs> they just couldn't think of doing such a thing. But it, it just shows you what can be done if, if, you, if, if you want to. Anyway, a month before the war ended, would you believe, we were detached to go with the KG-5, that's a battleship, the King George V, 
to join up with 10 American battleships and some American destroyers, and they carried out a bombardment of the Japanese mainland, the Hitachi area, which is sort of east of Tokyo. And we spent, I don't know, an hour or so, steaming up and down the coast, bombarding. Uh, <coughs> I don't know whether I actually remember it or whether, whether it happened or not, but I have in my mind that in Quiberon we elevated B-mounting to its maximum elevation and fired one round in the direction of Japan so that we could say that we had actually bombarded the Japanese mainland. And I think we did that. I think we did. So whether we could reach it, I'm not sure. Anyway, August came the A-bomb. I was 100 miles away at the time and I didn't know a thing about it. I mean, I, I, we would have been about 100 miles from Hiroshima when, when the bomb was dropped. If we'd known, we'd have been looking to see if we could see a flash or anything. Uh, and of course, when we heard about it, we didn't really believe it. But sure enough, the war ended. And then, would you believe, because the Qs, when you read this article, you'll find they had much better range than the ends, we were sent off on a mail run. And the ends, which had never been in the operational area at all, went in to take the surrender in Tokyo. We were pretty cranky about that, I can tell you. <coughs> it, it, uh, however, uh, we had an interesting month or so collecting prisoners of war. Um, two or three chaps we collected who I still see to this day. They're a lot plumper now than they were then. Uh, we were the first British ship into Shanghai when the war ended, which was quite an interesting experience, although an American ship had been in before us, so, so it wasn't. Uh, and there was a damn great Japanese cruiser up there, still with all these, you know, bits and pieces. Uh, however, they're, they're very obedient, the Japanese. They were told to surrender, so they had. He could have knocked us off without trying if he'd wanted to. However, the war was all over and that was that. Um, and that's about it. We uh, plotted about old George Knox, um, a very happy chap to have for a captain. And uh, in November, December, we uh, came back to Williamstown to refit. And oh, interestingly enough, George went on draft and everybody else went on draft and I, uh, for a little while, in dockyard hands, I must emphasize, I was uh, in command of the ship, so two and a half years before I joined her as the junior officer possible and when I left her, I was at least nominally in command, so I, I had quite a, a, a run in the vessel. And uh, she was a good little ship, there's no doubt about that. She steamed a lot of miles and gave us very little trouble, though beautiful sea boats. And uh, I, I recall many, many um, good shipmates, excellent shipmates. Um, she never gave anyone any trouble. The ship's company never gave anyone any trouble. She was, Alan's kind enough to say she had a tremendous record. Uh, she didn't have a uh, 
spectacular record, but uh, she was always there, and uh, she always did what was required, and possibly a little more. And uh, I would say she'd have been a very good ship for any admiral to have under his command. He'd be very happy with her because everything always seemed to work very well. And uh, that's all I have to say. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you're looking for more information about Australian naval history, then you should use our website. You'll find more podcasts, articles from our quarterly in-house magazine, Naval Historical Review, and a range of e-books, monographs, and ships' plans for sale in our online shop. If you have any questions or research inquiries about Australian naval history, then feel free to contact us. Use the link on the website homepage. The Society is a not-for-profit organisation which relies on your continuing support. Please use our website links to become a member, or donate now, or sign up as a volunteer, or subscribe to our newsletters. See you next time.